The following episode was recorded live on YouTube for Adulting.TV Live. Welcome to Adulting, a podcast where we want to adult every day. Download episodes at Adulting.TV. Welcome to Adulting. I'm Harlan Landis, and I'm here with Miranda Marquette. And our guest today is Emily Guy Birkin. Emily, how are you? I'm doing great, thank you. Yeah, thank you for joining us. And you just released a new book, so could you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, my new book is called End Financial Stress Now, Immediate Steps You Can Take to Improve Your Financial Outlook. And this is actually the book that I've been wanting to write for about uh, seven years now. And it is all about recognizing that uh, a lot of the stress we feel about money is all in our heads. Now, some financial stress comes from things that we don't have control over, but a lot of financial stress comes from the psychological or emotional or even the um, moral implications that we put on money that does not need to be there. And so I wanted to write a book that would help my readers kind of challenge themselves to think about those mindsets um, and the, the psychology, the emotions, the, the morality that they place on money so that they could release the unnecessary stress, which will help them make better decisions and feel much more comfortable, confident, and competent about their finances. Yeah, I think it's really interesting that although money involves numbers and it is you know, primarily focused on you know counting and arithmetic and mathematics and different formulas to determine, say, your net worth or your cash flow and all of these types of things that go into, you know, getting a handle on your finances. It's really more about the emotions and the psychology than it is about mathematics and logic. Yes, absolutely. That's something it's very hard for us to remember that money is not something that is in nature. It's a construct. It's a social construct. So money has value because we've all agreed that it has value. You know, these are little green pieces of paper that we exchange, or these are numbers on a screen that have meaning because we've given meaning to it. So because we've given meaning to it, that means that um, money is also something that we can have psychological reactions to and emotional reactions to in a way that is uh, not necessarily rational. So you end up engaging in kind of self-defeating behavior, making um, not great choices with your money, which uh, kind of further entrench your money problems, all because we assign value to money, both the you know numerical value that we've all decided together, and then the emotional or psychological or moral value. Yeah. And, and something with an emotional value can have an emotional reaction. And sometimes that can be detrimental to your finances. So how can we reduce some of those emotional reactions and improve our financial outlook and reduce stress related to money? One of the things that's really important is to look into behavioral economics. You know, you get some answers from there. Now, that is a relatively new field of study. It's about 40 years old. And it recognizes that the classical economics looks at money as if it exists in a a vacuum and looks at uh, decisions as if they exist in a vacuum. The expectation is that you will make the choices that that maximize your money or your time or your utility, to use very economic sounding words. So behavioral economics recognizes that uh, we have these kind of mental shortcuts to make decisions. They call them cognitive biases. 
Now, these mental shortcuts are like rules of thumb. They're not necessarily wrong. It's just that they can steer you wrong. And so if you always follow a rule of thumb, there will be times when it leads you to a bad decision. And so we're wired to make these decisions, even though they're not the ones that are going to maximize our money, our utility, our time. And uh, they are going to cause us greater stress in the end uh, if we don't think through the consequences of these decisions. Yeah. So I kind of like this idea of trying to look at it from a rational standpoint, because we're talking about emotions and we like to think that we're rational and we can divorce ourselves from our emotions and make money decisions. But is that really possible? Is that, is that something that we can actually do? Or do we need to learn how to like work around our emotions in a way that helps us stop them from putting us in these terrible positions? Well, the short answer is yes. <laughs> um, so there are some things that, that recognizing can help you see when you're falling victim to a cognitive bias or kind of a psychological trap. And there are some things where you're never going to be able to completely steer clear of those traps. So the idea is to avoid the situations in which you'll experience them. Just to give you some examples of some of the cognitive biases that you might come into, one of the, the ones that commonly mentioned is anchoring. What anchoring is, is when you hear a dollar figure for the cost of something, you decide that is a normal dollar figure that you can expect to spend. Any other price that you hear, you compare to it. So let's say you are in the market for some personal training. You decide you want to go to a local personal trainer. First personal trainer you call says that it's $70 for a half hour session. The second one you call says it's $50 for a half hour session. So after two calls, you're going like, well, that second guy is clearly a better, better financial choice. Well, the problem is you have anchored the price of $70 for a half hour session and that is, since you didn't have a sense of how much it would cost before you started making the phone calls, that is where you start the price point. And you might find that actually locally, most people charge $25 for a half hour session. And so that is something that um, uh, can really lead you astray. Starbucks actually did this to great effect. Nobody blinks an eye at the idea of spending $5 on a cup of coffee anymore. Whereas when Starbucks first came around, the idea of spending $5 on a cup of coffee was ludicrous. The way that they made that anchor point a reasonable amount of um, money for coffee was they changed the circumstances. They made going to a coffee shop instead of a quick in and out where you get a cup of bitter black stuff that maybe you can add some cream and sugar to to be drinkable. They made it uh, an experience where you're going into a coffee shop where it's just, you know, nice and serene and you get something that is specially made for you with your name on it. And so you decide that that coffee is different from the coffee that you usually would spend 75 cents on. And so here it is, you know, 20, 25 years later, it's a juggernaut. Um, you, a Starbucks is everywhere. And nobody blinks at the idea of spending five or eight dollars on, on a drink. So what's the problem with this? I mean, people have decided, let's say, on a whole, or at least uh, a number of people, not everybody, has decided that $5 is now an acceptable price to pay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, that's, is, is, that, is that a problem? Does, does that in itself cause stress? Or to, do we need to fight against that? Well, the, the problem with this is that, and one of the things that's interesting about behavioral economics is the, the field itself is only about 40 years old, but marketers 
advertisers, salespeople, and con artists have understood the basics of uh, behavioral economics for millennia. So for instance, black pearls were considered worthless until someone decided to market them as if they were this rare beauty and um, jacked up the price. I don't even remember how much, but a huge amount. And all of a sudden, they are the most expensive type of pearl you could buy, one of the most expensive gems you could buy. So the issue with anchoring and the reason why it is problematic is that it has an effect on your brain that you don't have control over. Marketers are having control over. Scammers and con artists have control over this this effect in your brain because they throw out the first number. So you'll see it in things like negotiating. They talk about when you are negotiating, you should never be the first one to throw out a number. It's because of anchoring. Once that number is thrown out, that is the baseline from which you negotiate up or down. Similarly, the other issue with anchoring is that the number does not have to be a dollar amount to affect your thinking. Dan Ariely, who is the rock star of the behavioral economics uh, field, did a study where he had students write down their last two digits of their social security number. So this is, these are random numbers and then bid on various items. And the students with the highest ending social security number digits that went from 80 to 99 bid the highest amount on items, while those with the lowest ending numbers, 01 to 20, bid the lowest. So the fact that this is a like cheat code for marketers, advertisers, salespeople, and scam artists is the reason why it's important to recognize uh, when anchoring is happening and recognize that uh, prices are not necessarily set in stone the way that you may think they are. So is the answer then to negotiate more or seek out better deals or do more market research or how do you fight against it? Uh, there are a couple of things you can do. More research is always good. And that's uh, that's something, you know, if you are trying to determine a fair price for something, the, the more information you have is, is better. The other thing to do is to create your own anchor to redefine the amount of money that you would otherwise spend. So when I was in college, my best friend decided to look at everything in ramens rather than in dollars. So, you know, of course, you eat ramen in college and uh, you could get it for as cheap as 10 cents a package, but she decided uh, like the unit of measure ramen was 25 cents. And so, you know, this is back in the ancient days when you'd buy a CD. A new CD at $14 sounds like not much, but that's 56 ramens. That's almost two months worth of dinner. So that helped her to anchor the money in in a way that uh, she is able to see what it really costs her. You know, another way if you're kind of past the ramen stage of life is to convert your dollars into time. This is a suggestion made by Vicki Robin and Joe Dominguez in Your Money or Your Life. So if you figure out how much you earn per hour and then look at money as hours of your life that you will have to work to spend on it, that is a way of combating anchoring. And then you can make a much more rational decision about, is this an amount of money? Is this an amount of time that I'm willing to commit to this purchase, considering that I have a finite amount? Yeah, and it seems like doing these mental conversions also gives you the opportunity to stop and think for a minute, even if you're not, you know, you're not thinking about, should I buy this? Should I buy that? You're, you're doing this mental arithmetic and that could that be just enough to give you the pause that you need before you make a poor decision? Absolutely. Uh, A lot of times all you need is just enough 
space between your desire and your decision to make to make a purchase to rethink whether or not it's uh, the right decision. You know, rationality only needs a little bit of time. Emotions are, are very quick. Rationality is a little bit slower. Yeah. So how do you develop that rationality? How do you kind of combat, you know, what we've heard of it called as like the lizard brain? Mm-hmm. How do you combat mm-hmm. that so that you're making better decisions, working around your emotions and recognizing that? I mean, you do talk about turning things into ramens or converting them into time, which I really like. I actually a lot of the time convert it into time because to me, time is way more valuable than money. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. I I look at it in terms of, okay, how much time is this going to suck out of my life? (laughs) And do I really, you know, what could I be doing instead? And and how much is it going to cost me in terms of time? And how much am I going to have to work to make up for it? So um, those are some tricks that you can use to kind of um, think about it more. But how else do you do it? Do you have any other tricks that can help you kind of get around that? Absolutely. And actually, a lot of the old chestnuts of, uh, of personal finance uh, work because they are combating a cognitive bias. They're you know, using behavioral economics, even though they were come up with long before behavioral economics was a field of study. So, for instance, there's that, that very old example of personal finance advice where you freeze your credit card in a block of ice because that will pre- prevent you from making impulse purchases. So what you're doing there is you're circumventing your lizard brain. You are forcing yourself to wait the amount of time it would take to melt your credit card to use it. And that's, you know, it's a, a, a very old fashioned suggestion, but it's actually very astute because it recognizes that, you know, when you want an impulse purchase, you'll actually, if you realize, remember that your uh, credit card is frozen in a block of ice, you'll actually be like, this is frustrating and annoying. And then like, you'll wait the 30 minutes or half or or hour or however long it takes to to, to melt the the block of ice. And the desire that you had will have dissipated by then. There's a reason why you're frustrated that you have to wait. It's because you want what you want right now. And your better angel will, uh, will correct you (laughs) if you, if you have to take long enough. So a lot of the kind of personal finance advice that is about outwitting yourself, and they call them pre-commitment mechanisms, uh, making the decisions for yourself ahead of time. So like automating finances, you know, automating your savings and your retirement savings and that sort of thing. So uh, carrying cash rather than credit cards are all about avoiding these cognitive biases and um, preventing yourself from making decisions entirely emotionally. Yeah. And I would say that the more we as consumers try to outwit ourselves uh, or outwit the marketers and the financial industry and the credit card issuers, you know, the more they'll fight back. And, you know, technology is certainly allowing us to make purchases without physical credit cards now. So yeah, your credit card could be frozen in a block of ice in the freezer. uh, But if it's saved in your browser, and all you have to do is click a button to buy something online without even having to enter your credit card number, then you're not really preventing yourself from, you know, it's, it's, it's a little bit of a barrier for yourself, but you still, you know, the, the way technology is setting things up for us, it's, Technology will continually remove those barriers. Uh, Some people can pay with a fingerprint now. Well, and that's one of the things where I I very much, I recommend that people don't save their credit card online retailers. Do not let it 
remember your mailing address if you can avoid it. Um, you know, some some of um, the sites they they just will remember it. But whatever you can do to to make it a little bit more work for you to spend money is better. You know, so. When you are on Amazon and you need to enter in a a credit card number, make it that you actually have to get up and get your wallet and get your credit card. Because even though that's just a few, just a minute to go get your wallet and enter your credit card number, that can be enough of a pause that uh, your brain will go, do I really need that Doctor Who mug? Whereas if you can just click a button, you don't have the time to think through it. And that's exactly why they offer one-click ordering. If there's a Doctor Who mug, I need it. I know. There's like, well, I don't need it. My son needs it if there's a Doctor Who. I mean, there's a need there. Absolutely. Absolutely. It was a bad bad example. For this particular audience. For this particular audience, yes. So let's say male romper instead. I'll I'll pass on that. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think anyone needs that. So what other uh, cognitive biases get in the way of our rational relationship with money? Another one that is a real problem is called hyperbolic discounting. And really what that is about is instant gratification. So, you know, if I said to you, hey, I'll give you $50 today or 10 days from now, I'll give you $55. Now, again, this audience might say, I'm waiting for the, uh, for the, for the $55. But the majority of people will say, no, give me the 50 bucks today. Now, the problem with that is $55 in 10 days is 10% interest, which you'd kill for um, from any bank or, or investment. And so that's, uh, what that means is that since we prefer things that are immediate and happening right now over the future, we tend to spend our money right now rather than saving for the future. I once worked with a woman who with a straight face told me like, well, I don't save for the future because I want to enjoy my money now while I'm young. And the fact that I did not slap her silly, I, I still see as a, as a proof that I am a uh, very restrained individual. But the problem is your future self is still you and your future self will suffer. And preferring the instant, the immediate, the instant gratification over what's happening in the future is only going to hurt you. So borrowing from our future selves by pushing today's consequences into the future with uh, hyperbolic discounting. And so that is something that can be um, really problematic. And it's part of the reason why retirement is such a, a crisis in America. Yeah, it seems to me that this particular issue is is a little bit more complicated than just the cognitive bias uh, approach to, you know, the instant gratification versus, you know, the misunderstanding or just lack of acknowledgement of the of a future self and planning for the future. I think the, there are a lot of people in a situation where you know, perhaps they, they, they've had a really difficult life for whatever reason, born into it, or it's something that has happened to them. And, you know, perhaps spending money is the only way that they can deal with, with their life. And, you know, that, that has to count for something as well. Oh, absolutely. And that's something that I find very interesting and, and that I talk about in the book. That is part of what's known as the scarcity mindset. Sandil Malanathan and his writing partner, Eldar Shafir, I believe is his last name, wrote a book called Scarcity. And what that is about is the fact that when you are living with less, and that could be, you could have money scarcity, you could have time scarcity. I personally experienced sleep scarcity. They also talk about like a caloric scarcity, people who don't have enough to eat. 
you become so focused on what you don't have that you have trouble making good decisions. So if you just do not have any money, anytime you get a little money, you're so focused on the fact that you have that money that you can't think about using it for something other than your immediate wants or needs. When there's, you know, in coming in the future, something that you are really going to need that money for possibly more, or might be a better use of that money. And so it's uh, that scarcity mindset makes it basically impossible to make the most rational decisions with, with something. And then add that to the hyperbolic discounting where, tomorrow's problem seems like somebody else's problem. You know, dealing with something tomorrow is like, oh, it doesn't matter. It's going to be happening to somebody else because we think of ourselves in the future as a stranger in a lot of ways. You know, those two things together and can really entrench uh, financial problems in a way that it is very difficult to dig yourself out of. Sorry, I, have, I had something I was going to say and now I can't remember what it was. Oh my gosh. Okay. <laughs> if you like, I can tell you what Jerry Seinfeld actually has to say about this. I would love that. <laughs> so Jerry Seinfeld actually has a, a classic bit about the fact that we are all victims of hyperbolic discounting. And so he talks about how he doesn't get enough sleep because he, uh, at night, he's night guy. And uh, he wants to stay out and have fun. And uh, what about having to get up in the morning with only five hours of sleep? Well, that's not my problem. That's morning guy's problem. And then in the morning, he wakes up and goes, ooh, that night guy, I hate him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and I think, I think we all have that kind of scarcity mindset in a way about different things like you were talking about. I think when we think about money in that way, it can kind of trip us up because we're always making decisions based on uh, what's going to cost the least, even, you know, like right now. And I think a lot of the time we focus on, okay, what's going to cost me the least right now? And we don't stop to think about the long-term effects of that or the fact that we might spend more in the long run because um, our decisions are, are being made right now based on uh, this idea that we're not going to have enough money or we're going to be running out of we're not going to have what we need. And so I think that that can push us to make uh, poor decisions as well. And uh, I mean, how do we get around that too? Well, and that's something where, you know, a lot of times it can be very difficult when, when uh, there is no clear decision, you know, to know what the right thing to do is, you know, when you, the, the, the future is ambiguous. So for example, my next door neighbor, her car was stolen and um, some kids took it for a joyride and totaled it. So she is suddenly in the market for a new car. They have three kids, so she needs something with third row seating. They have a pretty limited budget. So my husband is an automotive engineer, knows quite a bit about cars. And so, you know, talking to them a little bit about options. And there's something out there that my, my neighbor's husband really likes. And uh, my, my husband was warning him, like, there's this, this car has a lot of maintenance issues and the parts are expensive. So you might save money now, but it's going to cost you in the long run. So trying to figure out like, well, is it worth it to spend the extra money on something like a Toyota that in general, it tends to, you know, have lower maintenance costs and, and lower need for, for maintenance and repairs. Uh, when you don't know, like you could get a Toyota that's a piece of tin and you could get uh, one, uh, a car for, uh, that's from a make and model that's usually tough to, to deal with, but is actually really good for you. So, and that, that's the sort of thing where like trying to make those decisions is extremely difficult difficult and, uh, and hard to navigate. And there's a reason why it's stressful. But if you come into it knowing, A, that there is no one 
absolute right, perfect decision. And so take that pressure off of yourself. You know, there's no way that you're going to get a perfect decision. No matter what you do, there's going to be consequences, no matter which decision you make, and that's okay. And then also come into it recognizing that you're going to do the best you can with the information that you have, rather than allowing your your gut or your emotion to guide you. Is, is the best that you can do. And then just kind of forgiving yourself because a lot of people get really tied up in when there are these types of tough, tough decisions to make. They get so tied up in knots because like I have to do this, this, this the right way and so much depends upon it. I'm panicking. And uh, just forgive yourself and, you know, you can survive it. You can, uh, if you make a poor decision now, it's not going to doom you for the rest of your life. Yeah, and this forgiving yourself can be difficult. I mean, it's say potentially it's easier for me as a single guy because the decisions I make in my life with my finances right now affects only me and of course future me. But, you know, for someone with a family, you know, there there's there could be a little more pressure there because the decisions you make affect the family. If you, if you're making financial decisions or any decisions on behalf of a company or on behalf of a group, then there's a little more pressure. How, how do you fight that kind of pressure? Well, the thing that I, I, I want people to to remember is that money is uh, dealing with money is a skill, just like any other skill. So, for instance, you know, most people cook of some kind in some way. And the thing is, if you mess up cooking, you could make yourself sick. And in fact, you could kill yourself and your family if you screw up cooking badly enough. It's not likely. It doesn't happen very often. It's not something that people need to worry about or should worry about. In general, if you screw up cooking, you have a bad meal or an inedible meal. Or, you know, at worst, you go hungry if you don't, uh, if you're learning to cook and you don't have, you know, excess money to be able to handle cooking screw ups. Money is the same way. Yes, the stakes can be high, but mostly they're not. You know, they ruin your day. You might ruin your week, your month, your year, or a longer period of time, but it's survivable in the same way that bad cooking is survivable. So, and, you know, there are some people who don't cook and that's, you know, they don't feel comfortable in the kitchen, but uh, apply that to any skill that you had to learn. You know, if you ride a motorcycle and that's one, my, my husband rides a motorcycle. So I think about that, you know, those are, those are ones where, again, the stakes can be very high, but the worst problem is if you avoid learning, you are not going to fail by trying and doing things as uh, as well as you can within you know while learning while trying to use the skills that from from responsible people then you are by just simply giving up that's the only kind of failure there is is if you give up because you're afraid yeah i'm just thinking about all the 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 smart and careful investors who invested you know part of their portfolio with say someone like bernie madoff mm-hmm. who at one time was looked as you know a, a great um, money manager and, mm-hmm. you know, you do the best due diligence and you still get screwed. Mm-hmm. You know, that perhaps there's some ways to reduce the, the, the impact of something like that happening. And I, I do not in any way want to blame the victims of Bernie Madoff. But the thing that, uh, that is really important for people to remember is that the buck ultimately stops with you. Because that's one of the problems with going to a financial advisor. And that's one of the reasons why people like Bernie Madoff can get away with what he did for as long as he did, is people don't like to think about their money. They, they really want to be able to like, here, you take care of it. And they don't want to think about it. They don't want to think about what's going on. They don't want to think about why, are, why is he so good? Why is the money always going up? 
So, and again, this, this can sound terrifying to someone who feels money panic, you know, recognizing the buck stops with you, but ultimately it's kind of freeing, you know, recognizing that you are entirely the author of your financial life means that you have total control over it. You know, absolutely do get, you know, help from experts, but ultimately recognize that you're taking their advice. You are not blindly following whatever it is that they tell you to do. And again, that's not to say that people who who followed Bernie Madoff did anything wrong. He preyed on them. But my dad was a financial planner. And so I, he taught me to embrace my paranoia growing up. (laughs) Uh, Some of that had to do with him being very uncomfortable with me dating, but a lot of it had to do with money too. (laughs) But, uh, you know, constantly being in the, uh, recognizing that I am the author of my financial life. I need to know that no one cares about my money as much as I do. And so I need to always be asking what's in it for the other person. Why are they doing what they're doing? And so that's something that, you know, in general, I'm not going to say build a tinfoil hat and, you know, (laughs) assume that all the conspiracies are correct. But when it comes to money, recognize the buck stops with you and other people do not necessarily have your best interests at heart. So listen to their advice, but ultimately make your own decisions. Sure. I think that's a great tip for any financial transaction or relationship that you're in is try to determine the motives of the other person and -hmm. see what's driving them and whether that's whether it is if it goes along with what your motives are or whether it goes against what your motives are. And I think one of the things that we always have to be wary of is anytime anybody can promise certain returns or promise something that will come quickly to you and and part of this goes back to, you know, what we were talking about before, the lizard brain, the scarcity, the you know, you're you're in a tight pinch and and you really want something to work or you really want this thing to be real. And I've had a couple people come to me in the last few weeks, you know, like, oh, can you tell me a fast way to get 900 bucks? And I'm like, no, I cannot. (laughs) I cannot tell you a fast way to get 900 bucks in the next two weeks. Uh, You know, I mean, you know, and this friend of mine was like, you know, I I need 900 bucks the next couple weeks. I'm like, "Um, you know, unless you're willing to go up to Jackson Hole, sign up with Lyft, go up to Jackson Hole and pretty much just like camp out there and drive people around nonstop for the next two to three weeks, you're not going to be able to make the 900 bucks. You know, it's not something that's going to come easy. You're going to have to really work for it. You know, I was like, and I'm like, if you want cash in your pocket now, I'm like, well, you know, I said there are like three different, there are like three different restaurants hiring right now and for servers and you can go get tips. But you know, he was looking more like, well, what kind of investment tip do you have for me? And I'm like, you do not know me very well, buddy, if you think I'm doing that sort of thing, <laughs> you know? So I, I think, but, but we get in these positions where we are desperate or we are concerned or we do feel like we're in a tight spot and we want to find something that works and we want to find something that's going to save us and get us out of this position. And I think that's one of the the pitfalls because one, we have a hard time because we think we can get this money quickly. And two, the other problem we run into is the fact that we think that having more money is going to solve the problem. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. When the amount of money, while it definitely is a contributing factor, is often, you know, there's underlying issues that are causing, you know, that are getting you in this position to begin with. And until you address those underlying issues, just throwing more money at the problem is not going to help. Do you know, I I think some of this has to do with the way money is treated in our media. 
And so if you'll remember, movies in like the 80s and 90s seemed to think computers were magic. You know, if you remember weird science, like because of a computer, they were able to create a real woman. And so money is, is treated similarly in, in our movies. And the problem is there is no point at which there is enough money literacy that we recognize that it's treated that way in movies. Um, you know, we got to a point of computer literacy, you know, general computer literacy, where we're like, that is ridiculous about the way that they show computers working in our media. But we have not reached a level of financial literacy where we recognize, no, your, your friend who writes about finance can't give you a hot tip that gets you $900 for, with no money down in two weeks. And so that's, that is part of the problem too. And some of that is, you know, again, not to put my tinfoil hat on, but it is in the best interest of the financial industry to make money seem confusing and make it seem like you need a, someone from the financial industry to help you navigate it. So, you know, if you do not have someone in your life who, like if your parents are not necessarily good with money, if uh, you're not um, a financial geek who likes to read books about money, um, if you're not in any way part of the, the financial sphere, you might think that that is how money works and that there's some secret that the rich people are in on that you just don't know. And so, and that's something that is really troublesome and problematic about the way our society views money. And is something that I'm hoping to help uh, illuminate with this book. So tell us one time that your lizard brain took control and uh, you, mm. you had a misstep somewhere and succumbed to one or several cognitive biases. Oh, okay. So I have a tattoo. <laughs> I have a tattoo that I got when I was 23 years old. And uh, I am a quick decision maker, like boom, boom, boom. I want to make a decision. I want it done. I want the decision over with, you know, so I can move on to the next thing. And in general, that is something that, that really serves me well. I do not want to dawdle around decisions. I don't want to overthink things that I've already done. I don't want to overthink uh, decisions that I'm going to be making in the future. And so um, what that means is because I generally am uh, steered well by my quick decision making, I don't think to question it. So I was thinking about getting a tattoo and went to the tattoo parlor, told him what I was thinking about getting. He said he'd draw something up for me. I came back. It was not what I wanted. I made another suggestion. He did another drawing. And because I was going to leave that uh, parlor with a tattoo by gum, I had him put it on my, my shoulder. And now it's there forever. So just to be clear, the, the mistake that you feel was not getting a t tattoo, but getting one that wasn't exactly what you wanted. Yes. And actually, if I had done what, you know, some people advise, like if you want a tattoo, say a year from now, that, uh, you know, put something on your calendar for a year from now. And if you still want it that day, a year from now, then go get it. I should have done that. And I would not have a tattoo if that had happened. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I know a lot of people who have tattoos, mostly artistic people and some mm -hmm. people who have, you know, some kind of passion for art and they don't see it as a mistake at all. And they they're proud of it and and feel that they will continue to be so until the day they die. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, it's not something that I like have any huge regrets over. I mean, it's, it's, you know, I don't rue the day or anything like that, but that was definitely a, a wake up call for me. You know, the, the two days after I got the tattoo, I woke up sick to my stomach both days and I was like, what is wrong? Like, this is how I've always made decisions and it's never steered me wrong. And uh, realizing like, 
wow, that was not a rational decision I made. You know, I, I did this because I was in a hurry, not because I had decided this is truly what I wanted. And again, you know, I like, I don't even think about it most days, but that is that when I look back on my life, there are, um, <laughs> you know, regrets. I've got a few that again, too few to mention, but that's one of them is, uh, you know, if I had it to do over again, I would have made myself wait a year. And if at that point, I probably, if I still went through with it, I would have gotten the design I really wanted rather than what I felt like I needed to take that day. Tell us where we can find you online. So you can find uh, my work online at emilyguyberkin.com. And you can also follow me and chat with me on Twitter. My handle is at emilyguyberkin. And that's E-M-I-L-Y-G-U-Y-B-I-R-K-E-N. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. And uh, tell us again the name of your new book and where we can find it. It is called End Financial Stress Now, Immediate Steps You Can Take to Improve Your Financial Outlook. And it is available wherever books are sold and Amazon which is also a place the books are sold. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, we'll have some links to all of those those websites and the book. Uh, so feel free to visit us at adulting.tv to, to see the resources for this interview or to subscribe to future interviews and podcasts. We have a lot of stuff on our website, so please do check it out. And if you have any questions, come to adulting.tv slash ask. And you can also visit our Facebook community, hashtag adulting, so you can ask us questions there or join some of the fun discussions that we're having. And until next time, act like a grown-up. Thank you for listening to Adulting. Find resources for this episode or download other episodes at adulting.tv. Adulting.tv